0: Good afternoon everyone and welcome to the 48th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have a discussion about COVID-19, climate change, and the Green New Deal with Billy Fleming, Kate Marvel, and Franco Montalto. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on soundcloud.com. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics. And please do feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. On Thursday, I will talk about COVID-19 in Singapore with Dr. Sofokar Amir of Nanyang Technological University. As of today, there are 4,952,139 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 4,872,308 cases yesterday. 1,539,633 of those are in the United States, up from 1,520,029 yesterday. There are now a total of 92,712 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 91,187 reported yesterday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story every day, and I'd like to continue that now Headlined, for 25 years, he cared for Austin nursing home patients. This is an obituary that appeared April 21st, 2020 in the Austin American Statesman by Tony Plohetsky. Maurice Dotson updated his Facebook profile picture March 19th with what would become a haunting message. I can't stay home, I'm a healthcare worker. For 25 years, he worked at West Oaks Nursing and Rehabilitation Center in South Austin as a certified nursing assistant. He never let a resident's birthday or other milestone go uncelebrated and especially doted on those whose families lived away or seldom visited. He was the type. He didn't just leave at the end of his shift, said Mona Serber, who became friends with Dotson on the job eight years ago. He went and told every single resident on that hall, I'm leaving. Good night. Do you need anything before I leave? And that was every single night, every single night. As COVID-19 began spreading across Austin last month, and as patients in the facility where he worked became victims, Dotson weighed risks to his health and not going to work. He and Cerber talked or texted almost daily, and he insisted his priority was his patients. He would tell me, I know it's out there, but I have to work, and I'm not going to leave my residence, she said. Nurse Brian Zeken, one of Dotson's friends and a former West Oaks co-worker said, I think for him, That would have been like abandoning his family. As he pressed forward, Dotson told a couple of friends that he had begun to not feel well. On the morning of April 9th, Dotson, described by loved ones as a healthy 51-year-old with no underlying conditions, again posted on Facebook. He reported that he felt so sick that he had called an ambulance to take him to St. David's South Austin Medical Center. He became what is believed to be the first healthcare worker in Austin, Texas to die from the virus. Austin health officials said that, as in many cities nationally, nursing homes, assisted living centers, and other long-term care facilities have especially suffered in the coronavirus crisis. Eight operations are linked to clusters of the virus where multiple patients have been diagnosed. Those who knew Dotson said he never sought employment elsewhere because he considered West Oaks a second home and the patients and staff a second family. His sister, Felicia Dotson, said he helped raise her and a younger sister. The family moved from Arkansas to Denton in North Texas in the late 1980s. She said her brother had a friend in Austin and decided to move to the larger city in the early 90s. Zekin said providing such intimate care never dampened Dotson's enthusiasm, nor did seeing many of the patients with whom he developed close relationships pass away. He was a very proud nurse's assistant, which is to be complimented, he said. The majority of all patient care happens at that level. So for somebody to keep a positive, upbeat attitude after doing it for decades is amazing. That speaks a lot to his character. After learning her brother was ill, Felicia Dotson said she kept in touch with doctors and nurses as his condition worsened. She was discouraged from coming to Austin to be with him because of the chance of getting sick herself. She updated his friends on Facebook. He is fighting and we need true prayers for him right now. She wrote April 11th. COVID-19 has hit home. Over the next couple of days, she said Donson seemed to improve, then took a turn. In their small hometown in Arkansas, she said she is now making plans for his funeral and taking comfort that he died from caring for others. How I have made peace with it is that he died doing what he loved, and that's helping other people, she said. Zeke, who had been in near constant touch with Donson's other close friends, said he got a call in the middle of the night that he had died. As he drove to work at a dialysis clinic before dawn that morning, Zekin said he wiped away tears thinking about his friend's sacrifice. People tried to add meaning to a passing, but he went in knowing there was a good chance he would get it, he said. In a lot of ways, for me, he was a hero. Let's turn to our discussion for today. Let me introduce my guests. Billy Fleming is research coordinator for the Ian L. McHarg Center at the University of Pennsylvania Stuart Weitzman School of Design. Most recently, he co-authored The Indivisible Guide and co-created Data Refuge, an international consortium of scientists, librarians, and programmers working to preserve the environmental, vital environmental data at risk of erasure during the Trump administration. Before coming to Penn, Fleming worked on urban policy development in the White House Domestic Policy Council during the Obama administration. Kate Marvel is a climate scientist at the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies and Columbia University, where she uses supercomputers, big data, and satellite observations to study climate change. Before becoming a climate scientist, Kate received a PhD in theoretical particle physics from Cambridge University, where she was a Gates Scholar. She teaches in Columbia's Climate and Society Master's Program and writes for Scientific American and other popular outlets. Our third guest is Franco Montalto. Franco is a professor of civil architectural and environmental engineering and director of the Sustainable Water Resource Engineering Lab at Drexel University in Philadelphia. He's also the director of the North American hub of the Urban Climate Change Research Network and founder and president of eDesign Dynamics, LLC an environmental consulting firm based in New York City. Effects, uh, Dr. Montalto's research includes effects of built infrastructure on societal water needs, eco-hydrologic patterns and processes, ecological restoration, green design, and water interventions. Billy, Kate, and Franco, thank you for joining me on COVID Calls today.
1: Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us.
0: want to remind people that you can get in questions basically any way you want to. Uh, You can put them into the YouTube live chat. You can put them on Twitter. Just be sure to tag me at U.S. of Disaster and you can, some people like to email them to me directly during the program and you can do that. My email is sgk23 at drexel.edu. So please do get the questions in early. So I start these conversations always just by getting a sense of how how people are doing and how things are where they are. So why don't I start, uh, Kate, can I start with you? Where are you calling in from and how are things going there?
1: Um, calling in from New York City. Um, it is dystopian here, um, but, you know, we are fortunate. We are healthy in my family. Um, still employed. So that's, that's something to to be very grateful for. Um, I was so glad that you read that obituary of that beautiful life, because I think it really, really brings home that this isn't just about numbers. This is about real people. And I think in New York, we're really seeing that.
0: Billy, same question to you. Where are you calling in from and how are things where you are?
2: All right, well, I'm just down the road from you in Philadelphia, uh, in South Philly. Um, Things are okay. My partner and I both um, actually had lab-positive tests for coronavirus. Uh, She got off very light with a kind of a modest cough. Um, I had a pretty rough, like, 10 days or so back in early April, but I'm almost back to 100%, um, and I'm back at work, obviously, so uh, we're doing about as as well as anyone can right now, still have jobs, um, don't have anything to worry about, like, with our house or food or anything. Um, And I would just echo Kate's comment, Um, you know, too often these kinds of, um, well, not that we have a lot of experience with pandemics, but too often crises and disasters become abstractions um, and the very real like human suffering and misery uh, that accompanies them gets um, flattened. And so I I really appreciated us sort of starting this conversation um, by digging into, uh, you know, an experience that was very idiosyncratic for that person, but that is being felt by lots of people.
0: I'm glad you're doing okay, by the way. And thank you for sharing that. You're Thanks, sharing that. I am too. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Thanks <laughs> for sharing that. You my are.
2: my, yeah. My father, who is uh, in his late sixties and still smokes a pack a day, and I were like breathing at the same interval for a while. There, we were both wheezing every time we like moved around. So, um, and all in the scheme of things, I got off very light, but um, was not a fun experience. Sure,
0: I'm sure not, Franco. What about you?
3: Yeah, I'm also right here in South Philly, right down the street from you. Um, fortunately, we're doing well at the moment. We've got uh, three kids who are being homeschooled um, and who are working on uh, Chromebook computers provided by the uh, Board of Education for the city of Philadelphia. You know, I'm, I'm teaching online. Um, it's been um you know it's it's been a challenging time you're you're i you know echo what the other said about that particular obituary the idea of a nursing, cent, nursing home has hit home kind of care, kind of closely because we've lost some folks in our family um who are new york city folks um, that's where i'm from originally families from um so that's it's it's a it's challenging times um you know we count our blessings uh and you know i'm glad to be part of this discussion and and have actually used COVID. COVID has sort of revolutionized the type of work that I'm doing. all of a sudden, a lot of the research that I'm doing is COVID related. In fact, just before this, I was on a webinar focusing on extreme heat um, and COVID because as, as you may know, we're projected to have a higher than normal temperatures this summer. And with social distancing criteria in place, you know there's a real question as to how people uh will cool off given that you know libraries and senior centers and pools you know could all be closed so COVID is sort of even though i am a water guy by training um covet has sort of impacted a lot of the work that i do professionally as well
0: well thank you each for your for your introductions and i i can't wait to talk about your research i, I think the three of you each have uh we're in the same domain but but have uh, different enough research and we're gonna learn a lot today. I'd like to start actually, Kate, I mean, the first question I'm gonna give to you and I'm gonna um, wanna just give a brief quote from a paper that was published in Nature yesterday. Um, Just a couple lines from it. This is a paper uh, by Le Carré, at all lots of different authors on this one and this is just it says government policies during the COVID-19 pandemic have drastically altered patterns of energy demand around the world many international borders were closed and populations were confined to their homes which reduced transport and changed consumption patterns daily co2 emissions decreased on average 17 percent between 11 to 25 percent it says by early 2020 compared with the mean 2019 levels just under half from changes in surface transport at their peak emissions in individual countries decreased by 26% on average. This is just the most recent report that we've seen. There's been a lot of reporting about reduced greenhouse gas gas emissions right now. So how real are these numbers? How important are these numbers? Can you help contextualize these kind of findings for us in this moment? Because it sounds pretty dramatic, but I don't know what to make of them.
1: Sure. So I would, the short answer I think is real, but not important yet. Um, I think it is true that changing consumption patterns, changing economic patterns have led to decreases in carbon dioxide emissions. But I think the thing to remember about carbon dioxide is that it lasts a really long time in the atmosphere. And so what we care about is cumulative carbon dioxide emissions. So stopping adding to a giant pile of carbon dioxide piling up in the atmosphere, a temporary stop to that isn't really going to matter in the long term. So I think what's really important for curbing catastrophic climate change is actually not my domain, it's actually Billy's domain. It's actually people who are thinking about policy, people who are thinking about how we design systems. How do we take these carbon dioxide emissions and transform them into something sustainable? How do we take this drop and make it sustainable? And is there any relationship? Can we learn anything from human behavior now And can we learn anything going forward? I think that's the really, really important question. Something that I do wanna point out that I think gets conflated a lot in some of the, the reporting about this is that we've seen a drop in carbon dioxide emissions, but we've also seen a drop in what we call aerosol pollution. So basically the stuff that we like to think of as pollution, the stuff that blocks sunlight, the stuff that makes bad air quality days essentially. And we've seen a drop in that. Um, And that stuff matters a lot. And that stuff is different than carbon dioxide because that stuff doesn't stay in the atmosphere for quite as long. And I think there are things that we can learn scientifically for that. But as opposed to the question of whether those things are sustainable, that's something that is kind of beyond the domain of physics.
0: You're a a science communicator, Kate. So, I mean, what you've just described actually sounds like it might be a little... Complicated as a message. I mean, you've delivered it well, but is it is it hard for people is it hard for people to hear that? Because it, a lot of the reporting has your conflation. I agree. It's been like greenhouse gas emissions are down, and also the skies are clearer, and I don't hear airplanes all the time. And look, there's ducks in the park. It's kind of a mashup of environmental effects that are all in one paragraph sometimes in the news piece. That pose a problem to you as a science communicator.
1: I don't think so um, because I think most people intuitively understand pandemics suck, lockdowns suck. This is not what we want to do, this is not a blueprint for long term solutions. This is fundamentally, I think, not sustainable. Nobody wants to stay inside their house all day. Nobody wants to be driven inside by a very real fear of a global pandemic. And I think that's something that's really, really intuitive to people. And that's something when we when we sort of message about this, when we talk about the connections between something like the coronavirus crisis and climate, we need to be really careful not to fall into a trap Where We're going to be accused, I think, by people acting in bad faith of saying, oh, this is an opportunity. This is what climate action looks like. And to me, this is not what climate action should look like, because it's fundamentally unsustainable.
0: Billy, can I I just bring that same question to you, both in terms of the science, but also in terms of this opportunity to communicate with people? I mean, it's a real finding, and yet it carries with it certain concerns like Kate said
2: yeah well first I think Kate is exactly right um I think anyone who's trying to sort of model or pilot climate action um as being representative of what this moment is and feels like is making a huge mistake thankfully we haven't seen a ton of that Um, we've seen it mostly in bad faith efforts on the right um who from people who are opposed to climate action anyway but I tend to think of this um, as like one in a, a sort of litany or a long list of sort of profound economic restructuring moments um, and societal restructuring moments in the country. Um, and I think often we're faced with kind of a false choice here about whether to sort of rebound or bounce back to some sort of pre-disaster state, sort of a pre-pandemic world, which I think anyone um, you know who tried to say that with a straight face in most rooms would be left out of the room, hopefully. Um, because there is really no going back. There is a new world like to be built um, and to be restructured after this. And the choices before us now are like, what are the shape and content and form of like that future world? And you know, hopefully all of those choices are are well informed by are well informed by science, well informed by by you know evidence and information. Um but I think we're we're coming to a moment now where we have to make a choice about what that restructuring looks like. And the argument we've tried to put or I've tried to put forward with lots of other collaborators in many other places, and that we're seeing, I think begin to kind of echo and reverberate through the climate movement more broadly, both from like the wonk world and the activist world and kind of everyone in between, is to think about our response to the pandemic when we get to a point where it is time for most people to go back to work, which we're not at yet, even if most people are beginning to go back to work, um, it's incredibly unsafe for most people to be doing that. Um, But when we get to that point where, say, the WHO and the CDC give us the all clear, um, they say like social distancing is ready to be eased back and it's time to sort of restart the economy. Um, I think we have to start to think about what that stimulus measure is, which we can differentiate from, say, a recovery or bailout measure, which we're kind of actively sort of passing and living with right now. We can think about those stimulus measures as like a down payment on a decarbonized and just future. Um, And like anyone imagines that say phase five, six or seven of the congressional talks that lead to this, this back to work stimulus bill, You know, give us all the things we might want in something like a green New Deal or something like sort of climate forward infrastructure plan. Um, but what they can do is at, at the very least avoid locking in all of the worst case scenarios. Um, and there's a lot to learn and we can get into this if you want to in the conversation. I think from the 09 stimulus experience, um, it was not there for its passage, but was in, in the administration for its implementation. Um, there have been lots, I think, of, of sort of great analyses of what, what worked and what did not work well um, from that moment. Um, and we can start to sort of carry hopefully some of those lessons forward into how we think about crafting the kind of back to work reopening the economy phase uh, of the pandemic recovery um, weeks and months and probably realistically years from now.
0: Well, I definitely want to circle back to this to this issue about the stimulus bill and, and the Green New Deal. I just want to, um, so I'm going to put a pin in that. Franco, I just want to stick with the science here for just a minute. And again, these kind of news reports that we've seen and you were co-author last week, we were co-authors of a piece that appeared in American Scientist. But I wanna read one of the lines that I know you wrote. Um, And you said, we do not wanna confuse the consequences of a temporary pause in consumer economies with the structural changes need to avoid the most devastating effects of climate change. That goal requires, you said, a similar reduction in greenhouse gas emissions about 7.6% every year between 2020 and 2030. And that reduction must be accompanied by equally ambitious efforts to promote social justice and equity. So if you if you would, I mean, sort of take us into, again, some of the opportunities and yet challenges in this moment in terms of educating people. People do have a question, like do these emission decreases really matter? And if not in the way we did, what do they mean to us? What did, what kind of response do you give?
3: Well, I mean, you know, I would sort of reference a, an intergovernmental panel on climate change report back in 2018. that was looking at um, what's required to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. In other words, to, and, and that would be by limiting global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees C. And there's a really interesting report. There's lots of stuff in there. and um, It warns, that report warns that if we don't look at climate uh, action in a broader context that includes sustainable development, there are a series of trade-offs that we could inadvertently um, sort of call. And, you know, so some of the things that were referenced by the previous speakers are, are, are perfect examples of that, where, yes, we got Emissions reductions, but at huge social and economic cost, and and so that's not the way. That's exactly what that IPCC report is sort of warning against. That's not the way to get emissions reductions, and and you're not going to sustain those emissions reductions at the level, you know, as referenced in that in, in our American uh, scientist piece. We would need to get these levels of emissions reductions every year for the next 10 years. So of course, the way we got them this time, we don't want to keep getting them this time. And so there's some doubling back that's going to have to occur. And the question I think is Billy put um, is, well, what are we, you know, what, what is that response? What is that reconstruction going to look like? What, what are we going to do? Um, you know, I think that the, we're still, we may not be traveling, um, you know, to to and from work, but we're still living at home and we're still consuming electricity and our electricity is still coming from the same power plants that it was coming from before. So when we talk about structural change, I mean, we haven't fundamentally altered the way that we are generating electricity overnight. We may be consuming less electricity, um, you know, in- in certain ways. But there's a broader discussion about how our entire sort of economic system, uh, the supply chain, our institutions, our governance mechanisms, our um, sort of rules of, of participation and inclusion are are in line. And unless, and I think that's, you know, going back to this this question of trade-offs, I mean, that, if we don't, Think about this in a broader way, then we run the risk of of you know sort of one problem being addressed and another problem being created and you know as I mentioned, I was in this um, webinar earlier today looking at the impacts of extreme heat and the mayor of New York, for example um, is now giving out seventy four thousand air conditioners to low income and minority populations, which is great because if you look at you know sustainable development goal that focuses on equity and you look at climate you know you're you're saying well you don't want to have this double whammy where the most vulnerable people who were hit by covid are also now hit by extreme heat because they can't get into cooling centers this summer so that's an interesting marrying of 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 two goals but there are so many other goals associated with that you know so if we're increasing energy demand at the same time office parks are still running air conditioners even if there's nobody there and if people are now running air conditioners at home. The people who have the means to be able to to run those air conditioners. There's sort of non-trivial impacts on on peak demand, and there could be brownouts. There could be a whole bunch of situations. So, to me, the, this this question, um, you know, about what to do really needs to. We we need the emissions reductions, but we need them uh, via a very different pathway than the one we've just taken.
0: Billy, at this particular moment, you mentioned the 09 stimulus package, and now we have you know, this moment in time in which there is a pretty fundamental set of questions being asked about what the economy will look like and what might look like coming out of this. What kind of answers do you, do you give from your perspective? No, we can't shut down the economy for 10 years to reach the emissions goals we need to reach. It has to come via a different way. What is that different way? Give us some examples.
2: Yeah, so we, we can begin, I think, just by sort of looking at the O9 stimulus package and like what it did. Um, and Reed Hunt has an excellent book called The Crisis Wasted that really, I think, walks through some of the sort of political economy analysis of this in interesting ways. Uh, Reed was in, he was on the transition team, he was around the administration at the time and then wrote this really scathing book, I think, about the limits of what that stimulus provided. And I think ultimately, he, he sort of comes down on the side that I, that I tend to agree with that um, that stimulus package was way too small, um, so it's less than a trillion dollars. Um, we've already spent, you know, what seven, eight times that uh, this year already uh, between the Fed and between um, you know actual stimulus appropriations from Congress. Uh, it was a one-time shot, so we got one bite at the apple that time, and that was it. Um, and that it was way, way, way too targeted towards the one percent and towards big business, and not. This is a, there's a reason why um, you know I think. Thankfully, what we've seen happen already um, during this crisis is that, uh, you know, mortgage payments have been essentially deferred. Um, not all rent, but much many renters across the country have, have had kind of a, a sort of rent holiday or a suspension of rent payments. Certainly, there have been eviction moratoria in cities all over the country, although many of those are now expiring and not being extended. Um, the, the sort of line in the Obama administration in 2009, but those things were too hard to do. Like, we could not figure out how to, like, suspend mortgage payments. We could not figure out how to suspend evictions. Um, and already cities and states have figured out ways to do some of the latter. And already Congress has provided more money. And so I think, you know, as we get into like what a green stimulus or a stimulus that, you know, puts jobs and and infrastructure and sort of people first might look like, there there are a lot of lessons we can take from that. One is that I think, you know, there's a need, um, for automatic stabilizers so that we can take some of the, the sort of congressional politics out of, um, you know, future stimulus discussions and, when I say automatic stabilizer, you know, this is a word that economists tend to throw around. All that really means is that if we were to set a couple of benchmarks, um, say, you know, getting back to three um, and a half percent unemployment and, you know, we sort of highlight in the green stimulus letter we put forward, also totally decarbonizing the economy, um, then until both of those things are true, that something like four percent of GDP would be appropriated for climate and infrastructure projects for the foreseeable future. Um, that's basically a way of saying we're going to set aside a trillion or so dollars a year for climate action that isn't already happening until we fully decarbonize the economy. Um, That's one thing we can think about. The other, and this is a a thing that I've always really appreciated about, you know, science communicators in general and Kate in particular uh, is the focus on not just like storytelling, but like moving beyond the, the like molecules and electrons of climate change, which are hugely important, but like, No one's going to, we're not going to get on a Zoom chat like this and notice that our computer is powered by wind instead of coal. It should be, but like there's not, not yet anyway, like um, Lenovo has not installed an app that tells me where my electricity is coming from. But they are going to notice when they walk into their house and all of a sudden their gas stove is replaced by a hyper-efficient conduction electric stove. The same for all of the appliances in their house. They are going to notice when their commute to and from work is powered by you know, an electric vehicle that was incredibly cheap for them to buy because the tax credits have been tuned way the hell up mm-hmm. or because they're getting on a lower no carbon bus or train um, you know for their commute they are going to notice when all of the public space that like now has become hugely important to everyone's everyday life as they're hoistered away in their homes um, is getting like the 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 bulk of the sort of public works and infrastructure investment as opposed to sort of building uh, roads to exerbia and other kinds of like sprawl induced Uh, infrastructure that actually winds up blocking in a lot of carbon emissions. Uh, And I say that I I was was excited to hear the narrative in lots of ways that you opened us with, um, because it's pointed back to Arkansas, which is where I'm from. So I always like to hear things about Arkansas. This is like a thing you're required to do when you're from the state and you go like give a a talk like this. You have to say the state's name like five times. Um, But, you know, like there are lots of ways we can imagine a stimulus package that's focused on Buildings and landscapes and parks and civic infrastructure like schools and libraries and sidewalks that aren't like the sexy high speed rail projects that tend to get bandied about in the space, but that are ultimately like the things that shape our everyday lives for most people. Whether you're living in a big city or a small town, whether you're on a coast or you're living like in the mid south or the heartland, um, those are things that tend to that that where we have a shameful sort of deferred maintenance and investment um, backlog. And where um, we know we can create lots of jobs for people whose whose work is probably not coming back post pandemic, because there are lots of there are lots of firms, lots of companies who I think um, we imagine, some people imagine, might just sort of magically reappear if and when we get the all clear to go back to work, and that seems incredibly unrealistic to me. So thinking about targeting, um, you know, the kind of economy that we want to build around these things that are much more oriented towards like public luxury as opposed to private luxury um, have to be the core of any real stimulus strategy. Kate, I'm, I'm going to bring that to you.
0: I mean, do you have any anything you wanted to add to that? Or, you know, Billy said you get asked uh, difficult science questions, you have a good way of pivoting to communicating that in ways that people can actually think of in terms of action. Um, do you? How yeah. do you? <laughs> Tell us how you do it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, I feel like the thing that we, I have seen people realize over the past couple years with Fridays for Future, with Greta Thunberg, with you know, the release of the uh, 1.5 degree report um, that was mentioned, I think there's this real realization that, oh, this was never about polar bears. And like, I love polar bears. I get hate mail whenever I say that, like polar bears are great. I don't know any personally, but pro polar bear. Um, But this realization that, oh, this is (laughs) about people. This is about me. This is about my life. Um, And I think what I have seen, and what I like the the thing that I loved about what Billy said is that often you hear climate discussions very much couched in language of scolding and shaming and sacrifice. And this argument that everything has to change. If we don't do anything, everything will change. We'll experience really catastrophic climate changes. So since everything has to change, let's choose the change that we want to see. And that can actually be really joyful, really fun. We can have awesome things. We can have better lives. And I think that is a message that's really resonating with people. And it's not, and I know that there are certain actors who want to make the message, you're being scolded, you're being shamed, you're going to have to give up your hamburgers or or whatever. But I, I really, and I love the concept of public luxury versus private luxury. Mm-hmm. But I think those are those are the kind of things that I'm really hopeful about mm-hmm. that. People are awakening to the fact that this is not about electrons. This is not about molecules, except the ones that make us up. Not about polar bears. It's about us.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. It's there've been a couple. I'm glad you put it into that into that frame, and I wanna I want to get your your take on this. One of the things that's really struck me, um, and Franco and I talked about this a lot too, is that um, in the midst of this pandemic, I have been really astounded by. The helping and by the fact that, and I know we hear about people at state houses with guns and and various things that are real in our society and certain parts of the country of people eager to get out and get a haircut. Okay. But much of the country went inside and stayed inside and stopped doing what people wanted to do, those who had the luxury to stop doing that without losing their jobs, I should say. But most people did it because a health official said, you know, trust the science take care of yourself. And and the greater impact of that was not just for themselves, but for people they will never meet. I was really impressed by that. I wanna think about how you can mobilize that, that finding. I mean, it's a real strong collective action. I mean, it's the kind of collective action that we would think might be at the heart of real climate action too. The thing connected with that is also just at a moment when we were told there's no way a scientist could convince anybody of anything. Tony Fauci gets on TV and says, you know, you should think about doing this. And he's standing next to the president of the United States, who oftentimes was saying, ostensibly, don't listen to this scientist. And people mostly listen to the scientist. So I, I don't know if any of that resonates for you in terms of possibilities in this moment where people realize we can do things that we didn't think we could do.
1: Yeah, I guess, I mean, I would be really curious to get your take as a historian on this. But for me, one of the things that I find really frustrating is kind of a doomist narrative that's tied to human nature. And I think people who are talking about human nature as a single immutable thing don't know anything about humans and they don't know anything about nature. Um, so that. That really bothers me. Um, so, I, I tend to be kind of allergic to these arguments that we can never solve climate change because we're all terrible. And this is just our punishment for being terrible. Um, and I see that a little bit reflected in some of the media coverage of, especially the protesters. Um, you know, these people, they're really noisy, they have guns. Um, and and they're getting a lot of press coverage, and some of that does sort of feed back into this narrative of we we deserve what we get because we're terrible. And I actually don't think people are terrible. Like if you think people are terrible, you're probably hanging out with the wrong people. Um, so you know, for me, I think there you have to be very careful about sort of reductive narratives, either all people are terrible or all people are good because people are really complicated. you know we all contain multitudes. Um, so i you know that that's sort of one lesson that i've that's been reinforced by this is sort of beware of reductive narratives. Um, I also think you know if you look at the polling. Scientists are actually pretty trusted when we talk about science. We're pretty popular Um, I think the narrative that everybody hates scientists Is is really blown out of proportion by the fact that and trust me people do hate scientists They write me emails all the time Um, They are very loud. They do have very strong opinions, but that's not necessarily representative of the country Mm -hmm. or the world Mm
0: -hmm. I want to come to you uh, Franco, I know that you're, um, you mentioned the, the sustainable development goals a minute ago, and in the conversations that you and I have had about this, you, you, you pointed something out to me that I hadn't thought of, which is that to understand the impacts, the differential impacts of the pandemic, the fact that it doesn't affect people the same all over the world, and that that's also how we should be thinking about climate change. In other words, when we talk about climate change impacts as a nation, we are missing the fact that we're not really talking about the nation, we're talking about groups of people within a nation, and there, there's injustices there. How does that, I, I want to get you to talk a little bit about that and some of your thinking there, and and how that might connect to um, the Sustainable Development Goals, things that are already been, well been established in the discussion about climate change adaptation.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's it's a, it's a good point. The um <clears throat> the people who were disproportionately impacted by covid who are disproportionately impacted by covid are the same sort of vulnerable populations more or less that were disproportionately impacted as you know by uh, by other disasters and and so climate so to some extent watching the covid pandemic play out is sort of indicative of how the climate um, crisis will play out you know those who can afford to adapt or move or improve their situation will do so. Those who have no other choice but to continue sort of plugging away um, will be on the front lines and and so you know that reality i think is is a, is a sort of a call to action that if we don 't address some of the structural inequities and deficiencies in in our system, the fact that there are losers and winners, the fact that there are uh, marginalized and empowered—you know—if we don't address some of these broader issues, you know, climate, just like COVID, will have a disproportionate impact on on, on certain vulnerable populations, and then we will be sitting here again um, saying, "Look at that!" Once again, you know, it's low-income and minority populations and developing countries and blah blah blah. It's the same. It's the same narrative. We have to learn from this. We we you know. And I, I say that knowing it's not easy to learn from this and it's not easy to make those changes. Um, I think the sustainable development are really interesting to me because a lot of people, you know, when faced with this reality sort of scratch their head and say, well, what are you going to do? I mean, you know, what do you want? I mean, this is the way life is. But the reality is that, you know, all of the signatories to the UN um, agreement have Signed on to the Sustainable Development Goals. And there are 17 goals, and those goals are, um, <clears throat> you know, exactly the types of things that we need. So, a roadmap. There is a global roadmap for what we would ideally be, um, you know, be undertaking in uh, in in some kind of post COVID, um, post pandemic. Let's call it post global pandemic. Um, sort of restructuring, reshuffling of our priorities. Um, I wanted to just attack, you know, go back to some of the topics that were mentioned by the, the other two speakers. Um, you know, there are folks who are out of work and who need work, and there's work to be done, and there's a lot of work to be done. And the work that needs to be done is innovative, and it's, um, it's decentralized, and it's in multiple sectors, especially if you look at and take seriously all the different sort of dimensions of the... Um, you know the, the 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 sustainable development goals, and so you know there to me there seems to be the opportunity to marry um, those who are looking at the pandemic as an economic crisis, principally. Maybe they weren't impacted um, personally. Um, through sickness or death by somebody who you know through the through the, the virus itself, but they were impacted economically, and they see this and that. Those are the voices that are calling. You know, we have to go right back to work right now. We need to you know the real the real problem here is jobs, and 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 the other folks who are on the front lines and who say yet again, you know, we're getting the bleep end of the stick, and you know nothing ever changes. And so, if we want to restructure things and address these sort of two components of our society—those who, you know, want structural change, and those who really want a sound economy to be re- rebuilt post-pandemic—you know, I think there's some really interesting ways of thinking about that. How do you put people to work doing the types of things that we want? And I can just give you an example from our my own research. Um, we got a NSF RAP award. Um, to look at in 40 parks in New York City, sorry, 20 parks in New York City and Philadelphia, how people are using parks in the in the COVID era. Um, you know, we're interested in whether people are getting exposed to or, or engaging in activities that put them at higher risk of exposure to COVID, or whether they're really the parks are serving this sort of palliative role. You know, people feel better. Um, you know, going into nature. They're, they're isolated at home. This allows them to go out. And so to conduct this research, rather than sending academic researchers out into the field, um, we decided to um, actually recruit unemployed individuals and pay them in, uh, you know, using a, a sort of smartphone-based survey to conduct this work. And we pay them, um, you know, we're paying them you know, if we put them all together, we're paying up to $40,000 over the next eight weeks um, to about 40 individuals who are collecting data for us. And I think there's there's a whole bunch of sort of creative ways of thinking about this, um, creative ways of addressing the economic um, impacts of this crisis and addressing the, um, the work that needs to be done. And I'll just mention, you know, uh, Senator Coons has this... Um, bill this proposal for a national service act where he's proposing to massively increase jobs like americorps and peace corps volunteer for uh, corps around the country to get people doing especially i mean think about university students they're all this this whole flock of students who are graduating from high school and graduating from university and don't have any idea where they're going to get employment let's put them to work In service of the greater good, and you know, I think that's just a really interesting uh, direction that, that that's going.
0: that you're listening to COVID Calls, and my discussion today is with Billy Fleming and Kate Marble and Franco Montalto. We're talking about Green New Deal, climate change, and COVID-19. Billy, since the conversation has turned to politics, um, and specifically, maybe we can talk a little bit about um, this upcoming election, what should well, I'm most interested to know what Joe Biden should take away from this conversation we're having today, but maybe you don't want to advise him. But what should the parties, what should the Democratic Party, what should activists more generally be messaging right now in terms of, you know, the kinds of narratives they need to tell? Franco has just given us one. We have people out of work. That that's That's a moment in which we need to be fair, we need to be just, we also need to seize opportunities that are there. That's one type of message. What are some of the ones you are you think will work? I guess I'm asking you to be an advisor here and give me some free political <laughs> advice. So I'm not running for
2: anything, so. Not yet anyway, um, that'll be next cycle for you, Scott. Um, no, so I think um, there's a couple things. One, like I think on the activists and frontline community side, like they, they know like the stories to tell better than I do. So I'm not gonna pretend to like know what the right message is for them. But I think, you know, I've been interested to see now that every couple of weeks there there's a big splashy piece that's placed by the Biden campaign in like a legacy magazine about how he wants an FDR-scale presidency, um, which is quite different than like primary campaign um, candidate Joe Biden and general election candidate Joe Biden. Almost all that is a, a function of circumstance. Um, but I think, you know, to sort of point back to of Franco's points, um, I don't think We actually have to choose between, like, economy and, like, justice and quality of life and climate. Like, not only can we do all of those things in the same kind of investment package or or policy instruments, but we kind of have to. Um, We're not going to get very far if the kinds of things we're pouring money into are only accomplishing one of those goals at a time. Um, And so Senator Coon's bill is great. There's also, I mean, different proposals for a jobs guarantee led by Derek Hamilton and others um, for a long time and making the federal government an employer of last resort, um, which, as you can imagine, at a time like this would mean it's a very large employer. And at times, like uh, we sort of experienced maybe six, eight months ago with three and a half percent unemployment, it's a very sort of low uh, or sort of very um, small workforce. But there are a couple of things to think about. And one is, you know, you're an historian, so you already know this, but, you know, public health crises and built environment professions have merged together after moments like this before. And, you know, I think thinking about a, a physical built environment response to um, a, a health policy health crisis which is what we're living through uh, is not a new idea it's what gave us our sanitary sewer systems it's what gave us our lazarettos that ships used to have to, to quarantine at before they would come into port it's mm-hmm. uh, given us lots of other things that we, we sort of take for granted in the sort of shape and experience of our communities um the same is true for the new deal right so this is the central of the Green new and um, the New Deal seriously. And we tend to remember it for its sort of universal programs like Social Security. Um, But it also was a transformative package of investments in the built and natural environment. It builds something like 55,000 physical projects in real places all over the country in the span of about 10 years. And they include, you know, almost our entire state park infrastructure. So like 90% of all the state parks ever developed were developed during the new deal by the CCC and WPA, PWA and others. Um, We get about 40, 42% of all the electric transmission lines ever built in the history of the United States by the REA, the Rural Electrification Administration during the new deal. Uh, We get about half the trees that were planted in the history of the US over the course of the new deal. And we get our entire municipal airport infrastructure um, at the new deal. Those are things, right, with pretty high carbon legacies in in some ways. Like the REA was building, you know, power plants and lines that were you know, were powered by coal, uh, and in some cases still are. Um, the Civil Aeronautics Authority, which became the, the FAA that we know today, um, you know, was giving us airports, which are a very you know sort of huge carbon production or huge carbon source. Um, but you can think about, you know, I, I think we have to think about, you know, investments that put people to work that stitch together our communities. Um, And that you know, accomplish all of these goals around climate at the same time, which are fundamentally about decarbonization. And you know, I think just to kind of come back to a couple points I made earlier. um, One is that like a lot of the jobs that have been lost to this are not coming back. Um, We're we're going to see you know on the private firm side, lots of firms never recover from this. We're going to see lots of restaurants and bars never recover from this. And if our plan is to like not have a plan, let the market decide what happens to those people, um, then we sort of know like what the shape of that recovery is going to look like. It's going to be not existent for most of them or it's a very long time. And if we think about, you know, a, a sort of um, stimulus program that's focused on building lots of new things that might not accomplish a lot of the goals that we want to accomplish with a stimulus package, you can put people to work, like, clear again, like, clearing the backlog of maintenance projects on on things that aren't super sexy, like, in political terms. I, don't, I can't imagine um, Mayor Kenny here in Philly, like, showing up for a sidewalk repair, like, ribbon cutting. Um, he might for like a high-speed rail like cutting, but that's a thirty-year like time horizon to build a segment of high-speed rail. Um, maintenance and repair projects put somewhere between fifteen and twenty percent more people to work per dollar spent than a new capital construction project. So, I, I mean, I think for me anyway, like those are the highlights you want to hit. Like, what are the things that are going to put that are going to do the most good for the most people um, economically? What are the things that are going to get us on the shortest path possible to a sort of decarbonized economy? And what are the things that we can do that put, um, you know, frontline communities, which we can think of broadly as like basically folks who are left out of markets, um, which is like most people um, for the most part, or a lot of people. Um, how do we put them at the front of the line in terms of prioritizing that kind of investment? Um, and so, you know, we can listen to that or not. Um, but I think if his campaign is serious about an FDR-sized presidency, then it has to also be serious about. Combining this climate and infrastructure and economy question into a coherent package of ideas that he can run
0: It's that's interesting that that so so much of what you just said in your first observation That the central sort of premises of the campaign are so different from the primary to as we move into now I mean even you know, he was saying I'm the I'm the least I'm the least radical and the most conservative of all these Democrats up here You know me the best and now the language is it's quite different. I think also that sort of talking about the New Deal in this way, um, it's, it's probably malpractice for a historian to say this. It definitely is. I'll say it anyway. That I, I think if there had been um, environmentally sustainable infrastructure options known to the Roosevelt administration, they would have they would have pursued those. I mean, there there was sort of a sense of conservation at that time. Um, with this raft of different kinds of choices, I think they would have pursued the more sustainable options. And so that, I think that's not unthinkable right now to marry those two concepts. I don't think you have to say that um, we can't have a new deal and also have it be focused in environmental sustainability.
3: In um, the time we have left here, what's that? Can I just add something real quick? Yeah, there, I mean, I think the You know, in in the discussion about which infrastructure or which works, you know, which construction projects, I mean, there are some some key tipping points that I think just need to be called out, like public transit. Public transit is at great risk and public transit is a key component to our our climate future, but also a key, you know, it's key to cities uh, and, and all of the efficiencies that occur because we have vibrant cities and it's key to equity. Uh, and so there, you know, there's a, there. There are a few sort of nodes, um, you know, and I think green spaces is a perfect example. I mean, you know, it, it emerged, um, you know, during the uh, the Roosevelt administration, and it's and it's emerged. It's it's very prominent today. Like we talk about nature-based solutions to a lot of problems, and there's we've learned that there are so many efficiencies in using natural systems and using green spaces to protect our coast, to manage our stormwater, to reduce our temperatures, to create, you know, to improve our property values, to to enhance our, our public experience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like, you know, infrastructure is not infrastructure is not infrastructure. There are certainly we need the jobs and certainly there's a lot of infrastructure, but there are key infrastructure systems where you can get, I think, bigger bang for your buck along, you know, again, along this sort of uh, this theme that I was talking about earlier of the sustainable development goals. And another way of thinking about it would be just multifunctionality. We're trying to build infrastructure systems that give us multiple things that we need. um, and you know, we can build the workforce at the same time. So we got about five minutes left and I
0: wanted to, I've been asking people this question and Kate, I want to, I want to talk to you just about the changes that the pandemic has caused in the way you do your work. um, if any, And, and I guess connected with that also is thinking about sort of aspiring scientists, people who are, you know, maybe in high school or just starting college and coming into this moment, um, what, you know, how you think this might impact them, what kind of advice you're giving people, particularly with the economy looking as it is. I mean, how is, I guess my question is, how is your sort of world as a scientist changing right now?
1: Um, I think the honest short answer to that is I am doing not great science right now because it is very hard to do great science when you have a Kid home from school, running around making a lot of noise. Um, I think you know that has been a giant hit on my productivity, um, and also you know not having my colleagues around to just bounce ideas off has been really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, I think kind of you know the the more sort of structural answer, long term going forward, is I think I worry that scientists might learn the wrong lesson from this crisis, and the wrong lesson might be science is great. It's enough to be right. Everybody just shut up and listen to us. And like, I love science. I think science is great. But I do think there's a danger in treating science as, and I, and I think Franco and Billy have done a really, really good job of explaining sort of what the other areas of knowledge that we need to solve this problem. And so I think scientists need to get better at not just communicating, but listening. Scientists need to get better. And, and I think, you know, I, um, as a physicist, we are trained to make scenarios, to draw boundaries around scenarios and say, you know, there's no friction. Everything's a perfect sphere. What can we learn from that? And we can learn a lot from that. But we have to make sure when we do that, we're not creating completely artificial systems, right? So if we're saying, oh, all the atmosphere cares about is the chemistry, is the carbon dioxide concentration, To a certain extent, that's true. But the way that I change carbon dioxide concentrations in a climate model is I change a number in the run deck. And that's not how carbon dioxide changes in the real world. It changes due to a set of historical circumstances, a set of policy choices. And it goes down in the future because of those choices, because of pre-existing infrastructure, because of politics, because of what's possible. And I think as scientists, we need to start a dialogue with people who are not just scientists. And I think that's something that my students at least just sort of intuitively understand that hmm. maybe has not penetrated into sort of academic, quote unquote, ivory tower science.
0: Hmm. And your students in this particular moment, how are they, how are they feeling about you know, the career path that they've moved into?
1: you know i i think they're graduating this year because it's a one-year master's program and i think all students are just feeling really freaked out about the world they're going out into Mm.
0: this one of the things that you you said really struck me too that you know talking about the way physics works with models i feel like we're all getting a sort of real-time crash course in how to think about models we've been inundated with public health models example but i think also these climate models that we started our conversation with today you know there's a lot of this information coming at us this the american public scientific literacy it's a moving target it's hard to say if it's low or high i i I don't know but when you try to communicate those very complex again ideas around the the multiple like bringing a model into the world how do you how does that communication work do you have a, a
1: I mean, I would never presume to be the expert on it. I just shoot my mouth off all the time, and sometimes <laughs> when I say lands but um i do I do think you know sometimes people say don't talk about uncertainty because when you say when you talk about uncertainty, it's immediately weaponized. but I want to talk about uncertainty because i that's what I do all day, like that's the world that I live in like who wants to talk about stuff that we've known since like eighteen ninety six is boring um, but The the fact of the matter is, I think it's it's really imperative to stress that uncertainty and certainty can sort of coexist together. So, you know, in epidemiological modeling, there's a whole bunch of stuff we don't know. This is a novel coronavirus. There's a lot that we don't know about how it works, but we know what a virus is, and we know that you're not going to be able to stop a virus spreading by yelling at it. You know, that is the scientific consensus. So there's a lot of stuff we don't know. And there's a lot of gray area. and There's a lot of uncertainty. But there's also certainty. Mm -hmm. And I think with climate change, it's the same thing. You know, carbon dioxide has the molecular structure it has. It is a greenhouse gas. We know that. Nobody is, like, one dude is disputing that. Like, nobody seriously disputes that. But at the same time, there's a lot of uncertainty about what climate change means in the future. And I think for a long time, if we don't talk about uncertainty, then that gets seized upon and it's like, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. And uncertainty is not comforting. It's actually totally terrifying because if you knew exactly what was going to happen. So if you knew that, okay, there's going to be a giant drought in exactly this year and then the subways are going to flood in this year on, you know, March 24th. Night, you know 2024 the subways are mm. going to flood if you had that specificity you could make plans to deal with that right. but we don't have that specificity and we're never going to have that degree of specificity and I think it's really really important to talk about uncertainty so that people don't hear okay well it could be bad but it could be fine mm. and just say look like we've ruled out fine it's not going to be fine.
0: Mm. really like the way you're talking about Certainty and uncertainty and the ability of people to try to deal with both. I talked with Dan Zerilli Who is the climate change policy director for City of New York a couple weeks back and he had a great I asked him a variant of that question and his answer um, about the uncertainty and the weaponization of uncertainty was that yeah, there's there's whole industries that have spent years trying to convince people that that uncertainty is um, basically means that all that science is useless. Instead of framing it just the way you did, which is that it's it's the unknown and uncertainty that drives. Otherwise, we'd just be reproving the same old things that we knew from the past. That's an important point to make. We're almost up on time. I want to get a just a quick, um, uh, just a quick take on this from Billy. You're at a university. Uh, we are all three situated at universities, and we're just hearing. Um, from Kate about her students. I want to hear also from you, Billy, and from, from you, Franco. What's happening on campus? Well, nothing right now. No one's there, but the students are still active, um, I presume. Is this, what's the, what's the sense of students right now in terms of action? Are they, are they, is this a moment of student activism? We may not be able to see it on the campus, but give us a, a sort of read of how students see this moment.
2: Sure. Well, I mean, I'll say, so most of our students just graduated. Our, our school commencement uh, at Penn was Saturday, and I think the university-wide commencement was Monday. Um, and like case K- students, I think they're, they are rightfully filled with anxiety and stress about, like, the short, medium, and long-term future for themselves and for, like, everyone they care about and for, like, the world they care about. Um, I think our placement rate is usually, like, 100% before graduation for graduates. It's, like, 2% this year because literally no one is hiring. Um, we, I have several students who are going to be working with me this summer who, you know, had in- summer internships that were rescinded. Um, if you look at uh, the, the American Institute of Architects um, tracks, um, you know, basically building contracts. So a sense of like how the, the industry is doing uh, over time. And in 60 days of lockdown, we've reached the sort of um, same dip or same trough uh, that we reached at the worst phase of the Great Recession. Um, And who knows, like, if or when it will recover. It never really recovered after 2009 or 10 uh, within the industry. Uh, um, And so I think, like, they're rightfully uh, freaking out. Um, I would be um, if I were them. And I think in some ways, like, that anxiety and that grief and that stress can be channeled into, like, productive ends, but only to a point. Um, I don't think we can expect like students who are dealing with all kinds of things on top of this like massive global economic crisis and, and health crisis. Um, they all have like other shit going on in their lives that they were and are dealing with and will be dealing with that are like layered on top of this, and this is only making it worse. And I think this is you know when I look for like parallels between you know the climate crisis and this public health crisis, that's one where that's pretty obvious. I mean the challenge for climate action has always been that it's like very, very, very diffuse and impact and hard to understand. Like you can't, I can't walk outside and see like carbon molecules swinging around off my face. Um, And so I think like the same is true for this. Like they can't walk outside and like get a sense of like how the global economy or how the virus is doing based on like looking at things. Um, And its effects are just so widespread and so amplified by all of the other precarities that sort of shape their everyday lives. Um, And that sounds like quite, Like dismal, and I, I, you know, I I, like. I'm very wary of becoming or sounding like doomerish about this, but it is very bleak for like students who are entering or trying to enter the job market, graduating from a university that is like frankly absurdly expensive um, and doesn't like offer a ton of aid to most of them who are graduating. So they're all saddled with tons of debt. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, I think like the short version of this, or the TLDR of this, is like they're they're rightfully panicking um some of that will result i think in like interesting or productive work around you know, like climate mobilization or, or whatever it might be in response to this but a lot of it will just mean that like people drop out of the the field um we saw this in 2009 and i think um architecture landscape architecture engineering often struggle to like figure out why they have um so many women and people of color in their their um their educational programs and so few in the workforce and the answers are pretty obvious like one is that like Often their like family leave policies and their benefit structure sucks um, in their corporate offices. The other is that crises like this um, tend to basically push lots of people out of the workforce. And if it's only your youngest or newest generation um, that is actually starting to be representative of like the world in which your field operates, um, those are the folks who get you know laid off first, and they might never come back.
0: Franco, the last word to you. We're, we're kind of up on time, but I did want to get a sense of what you're you're seeing. You, the Urban Climate Change Research Network North American Hub is at Drexel. I know you've been involved working with students who've been pushing a sustainability uh, pledge for Drexel. Yeah.
3: When, yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I apologize. I got kicked out for a second and I'm back in. So I don't I don't know if some people said some things. I don't know. If, well, we
0: we solved it, but we decided we'd stick around a couple minutes till You came back. Just,
3: uh... <laughs> um, I, I just say, you know, this generation. Right. They were born. The, the students who graduated this year were born right before 9-11. They went through the financial crisis, which, you know, the financial crash, which may have impacted their city, their uh, families. You know, they've been exposed to divisive politics. They've been hearing about climate change. You know, they've, um, and now the pandemic. And so, you know, I think it's easy for some of us uh, to say, oh, this cynicism that I sense coming, where is it coming from? It's very clear where it's coming from. And, um, but on the other hand, I see another side to this. I see students yearning for purpose and meaning and, um, and sort of, institutions that do the things that they know instinctively need to be done and have not been done. And like, you know, I can say that I've been involved with helping advise two student groups at Drexel, Fossil Free Drexel and um, the Drexel Sierra Club, who just before, you know, starting in, I think it was the end of February, we had just decided to do a series of, actually they had decided, and I was their advisor, of climate rallies. And we did the first one, we got 50 people And then we did, you know, in March, we were not able to do it in person. Uh, So it turned into a, um, it turned into an online rally and, you know, it's, it's continued from there. And I'd say that there are student leaders and sort of rank and file uh, members who are really pushing. And in many cases, it's, I would say it's, it's somewhat humiliating because it's students, you know, I know at Drexel in particular, a lot of the work pushing a sustainability office has been driven by an undergraduate student in particular, who, you know, who's kind of leading by the nose, um, the rest of us to, to make us do what, um, what we should be doing. And I, but to me, that's also a sense of, a source of optimism, you know, that I see students, I'm offering a, a course this summer about extreme precipitation and, and, and flooding. And I just thought, man, this is a new class. Who's going to be interested? It's already full. I've got 15 students already uh, interested in this. And Next year, you know, sort of riding this wave, next year we've decided to make uh, climate year at Drexel. And there are students, you know, there's all kinds of um, sort of projects emerging. And we've even got within um, the freshman curriculum in the College of Engineering, we're building a climate module into that. So I don't know, I see this, I I, I see sort of gradual and um, but encouraging changes. And I see students leading. And I see them sort of asking the rest of us to, um, you know, to do what what needs to be done. And and I think it's time for us to do it. You've been listening to COVID
0: calls tomorrow. My guest will be Sulphakar Amir. We're going to talk about the COVID nineteen situation in Singapore. And you can listen to COVID calls every weekday, Monday through Friday, at five o'clock on YouTube Live. And you can always catch the podcast on SoundCloud. I want to thank my guests, Kate Marvel, Billy Fleming, and Franco Montalto for a really great hour. I said it would be an hour and it's been an hour and 10 minutes. I think we could keep going. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing and for taking this time to have this conversation. So organizing, Scott.
3: Thanks
1: for having us.
0: Yeah. So was fun. Stay healthy, everyone. And we'll talk to you tomorrow at five o'clock.